We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, El Monte. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, El Monte. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says there in verse 1, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold towards you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some, who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Now Paul here is speaking with the Corinthians, and he's actually, notice there in verse 1, he's pleading with them. You see that there also in verse 2, he's begging them. And he's doing so, he says in verse 1, notice there it says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. You know, as we come to this section now in the letter, there are actually some people who believe this is a separate letter because he is going to get a bit blunt and he's going to get firm and stern on paper. We're going to see in the next three chapters. But the only reason he does so is because he doesn't want to be that way in person. He's choosing now to be that way on paper, but not in person. You know, because the, the question is, are they going to change or not? Are they going to repent or not? Will they stop stirring up trouble and opposition to his position as an apostle of Jesus Christ? Or will he, Paul, when he arrives there in the congregation, have to use his apostolic authority and judge them? Because there is an apostolic authority that was been given to him. And so he doesn't want to have to do that. And so what he's doing is he's pleading with the Corinthians by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. What I would say is this, is that the Holy Spirit is speaking to them, but, but it, they're not listening. And so, you know, he comes, first of all, with this meekness. I think it's cool. And the, and the gentleness of Jesus. You know, aren't you guys glad that that's our God? He, he initially approaches us in that fashion. Aren't you glad that Jesus is a perfect gentleman? I mean, aren't you glad? It kind of trips me out. He doesn't have to be that way, but our God is meek. Our God is a gentle giant or whatever, a gentle God. I mean, that's just the truth of who he is. When you study the life of Christ and you read the gospel accounts, I mean, you just see it so plain as day that Christ came the first time as a lamb and he gently and meekly laid down his life there on the cross. He painted the ground red with his own blood, white, to wash away our sins. So gentle, so loving, so meek, so humble is our awesome God. That was the meekness of Christ. I mean, he was so gentle. If you remember in Matthew 11, you guys know the verse, right? 11, 28 through 30, he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Remember? He said, Take my yoke upon you. Not the world's yoke. Not what they tell you to do. No, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he says. No, don't learn from them. Don't learn from these self-righteous Pharisees who are so caught up in all their rules and regulations and they're wearing the people down with all their burdens. No, he says, Come to me. 
All you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Here's the reason, because I'm gentle. He says, I'm gentle and, and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, from what I understand, this is the only time in the Bible that Jesus speaks a personal characteristic regarding himself. And when he does so, he calls himself gentle and lowly in heart. You see, and that's who the Lord is. You know, Jesus' very invitation for salvation, it comes from the heart of a gentleman who, you know, who loves us and who would lay down his life for us, even like a lamb led to the slaughter. He was nice. I mean, he was meek. He was humble. I mean, it didn't mean that he couldn't or wouldn't get angry because he did. There were times when, you guys remember, he went into the temple, he made a cord of whips and he drove those people out of the temple, right? I mean, there is a time for righteous anger, right? Righteous indignation. But the general approach of our Lord was a general approach, was a, a meek approach. And that's why as he approaches us in that fashion, you know, he wants them, he wants us, Paul wants them to change. Because what ends up happening is, you know, sometimes a leader and, you know, like the Lord, they're gentle, they're nice, they're meek, they're humble, they're patient, and people take advantage of that. They misinterpret the meekness for weakness, and then the day comes where the leader led by the Lord has to discipline them. And that's what Paul is, is actually trying to avoid. He's, he's saying, you know what, let me approach you in a nice way. And we're like that with our kids, right? Those of you who have children, you know how it is. First, it's like, oh, mijo, please don't do that. That's not good for you. You're going to hurt yourself and you're going to hurt someone else. And then, and then they do it again. And, you know, it just as time you know, progresses and things escalate, forms of discipline change. And eventually, you know, you got you to gotta kind of like hurt them. Otherwise, they won't learn the lesson. They have to equate the, the, the disobedience with discipline. If you don't teach them that, then you're ruining your children. And so Paul here, he says, you know, uh, in, 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 when I was there with you guys in the past, I was really nice, I was really meek, I was really gentle. Now I'm writing, and I'm going to get a little bit more firm and a little bit more stern. We're going to see that in the next three chapters. But the only reason, he says, is that when I do come to you in Corinth, and when I show up, my prayer is that I won't have to discipline you with the apostolic authority and responsibility that I have as God's messenger. And that's where he's at right here. He didn't want to go there. <laughs> He didn't want to go there. He says, I don't want to have to confront you. I don't want to have to slap you. I don't want to have to discipline you when I come. I mean, there are some of you who think that we're called and commissioned by Christ and we don't walk spiritually, that we walk carnally. There are some who say that about us as leaders. They said that about Paul because we know earlier in chapter 1 and 2, he had changed his mind about going to their congregation and, you know, leaders sometimes change their mind and they go in a different direction as God would lead them. And some misinterpret that as being weak or, or flaky. It's not. They're being led by the Lord. Let them be led by the Lord. Uh, they said this about Paul because 
He was nice to them in person. And again, you know, they said, oh, he's a mellow fellow. I don't know if I can handle a mellow fellow as a leader. He was meek. And they misinterpreted him as being weak. They thought he was flaky. They thought he was weak. And they were very unimpressed with his physical presence. I mean, you know, the way he looked, they didn't, we weren't impressed by it. The way he spoke, they forgot that God had put him there. That didn't matter to them. They just saw he looks kind of funny. History tells us he was short, he was bow-legged, he had a unibrow, he had a long nose. Um, some say, uh, based on the language here in verse 10, that he had a squeaky voice, uh, that he didn't really present himself well when he spoke. He definitely wrote good. He definitely wrote, man, absolutely awesome. Of course, we have his letters in the Bible, right? But as far as the way that he spoke, ah, they weren't really impressed by that. Look what it says here, even in verse 10 of this chapter it says for his letters they say are weighty and powerful but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible They're like you know what we're not really impressed with this guy and so the Judaizers had slipped in others had come in and they were attempting to divide the congregation and Paul says you know what I, I, I'm trying to just bring you guys to that place listen it's not about me. It's not about the messenger. It's about the message. And it's about what God's trying to do in the hearts of his people in his beautiful church. And so what is he trying to do? We're going to see as we go through the next three chapters, he's really trying to bring them to that place of surrender. You know, there were some in the congregation who opposed him, not all, but some were trying to turn the people against him. And this can happen in various ways. Ultimately, what the devil wants to do, he knows it's so effective, is to divide this congregation. That's what the devil wants to do. Why? Because his agenda is divide and conquer. Right? So Paul said, hey, you know what? <laughs> I'm reaching out to you guys. The accusation that you see about me, he says, is not true. Look what he says there in verse 3. For though we walk... In the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Now for Paul to say, I walk in the flesh, because nine times out of ten, or I should even say like 99 times out of 100, when Paul referred to the flesh, it was in the negative sense. John, it was different. John, walking in the flesh, you know, Jesus coming in the flesh was good. But when Paul said, I walk in the flesh, this is, uh, this is something that that that's, he normally didn't do. It was usually for him a connotation for a sinful nature. It wasn't good. But so he, what he's doing right here is he's really emphasizing a different point, and that is this, that, that even though I'm still human, he uses the word, but right here the connotation is even though I'm still human, for though we walk in the flesh, we're still in our human bodies in, in one sense. We're so natural. But even though we have that natural part of us, he says, when it comes to life and ministry and their battle that we're in, please believe me when I say that we do not war naturally. We don't fight naturally. We are fighting supernaturally regardless of what you're saying. Regardless of what you're thinking, regardless of the seeds of discord and gossip that you're spreading. No, we are walking, he says, supernaturally. We're not walking in the flesh as far as ministry goes. We're not fighting 
in the flesh. You know, and it reminds me of that verse uh, that we have in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. It's exactly that. It's not by might nor by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. And, and you know, for us, I, I pray that we would have that as our, as our motto because it's so easy to revert back to things being done in our own strength. And one translation puts it this way, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Another, which is probably truer to the text, says we are human, but we don't wage war in our humanity as far as from human uh, weapons go. This war we're talking about, it's not fought with uh, knives or guns. I mean, you can't go down to the abortion clinic and kill the doctor and think that something good is going to come out of that. That's not how we fight this war. It's not fought with the ways or the will of the words of men. No, in order to win the war, the most important war of all, we must rise above our simple humanity because what we have and what we have to offer, my logic, you know, my intellect, you know, my hand, my mind, my means, they're not even close to being enough. They can't even categorize in this war. They won't make a sliver of a difference if I try to fight this war with human weapons. You know, and, and it's kind of sad that they would even say this about Paul. Oh, he, he walks and he wars according to the flesh. But you know, that's the way it is when you're in the ministry. All you guys, not just leaders, not just pastors, but you're an overseer, you're involved in ministry. You know, the, the devil's going to come, he's going to say things about you. And I remember one person said, in order to be involved in the ministry, you have to have a thick skin. Maybe like maybe the skin of a rhinoceros. But maintain the heart of a child. It's okay, you guys. People are going to say things about us. And sometimes we have to speak up a little bit. Most of the time we just pray. And let the Lord do what He wants, right? So it's kind of sad that they said this about Paul, but in one sense I'm glad because we then get a glimpse into spiritual warfare. You know, and, and, and just in case you forgot, we are in a war. I mean, I mean this is, sounds kind of weird, but imagine if uh, you know, we lost World War II. Imagine how different life would be right here. Imagine if we lost, you know, the, the Gulf War. You know, imagine that. You know, we're blessed in the United States of America uh, predominantly to have won the wars that mattered. You know, we have the freedom. We have the life. We're, we have the benefits of having the victory. You know, because we've won all these various wars. But now you take that into spiritual realm. And, and the question is, are we winning those wars? And I probably should say more along the lines of battles because I have to say this, that the war is already won. Jesus won the war on the cross. And so that's a done deal, right? Praise God. I pray that you have given your life to Christ because if you have, then you've just registered onto the winning team, okay? But what about the battles? What about the battles along the way? Uh, what about the battles for, and we're going to see today, all these you know, strongholds in society 
that are just waiting for people to wake up and to realize that they're in a war that needs to be fought with spiritual weapons. That they need to put away their, you know, their spit wads and pull out some real weapons in order that we might win the war for my children, for my marriage, for that ministry, for this city. For whoever it is that we're fighting for. Nehemiah 4.14, it says, fight for your houses. This is a war that we're in. And we have to realize that we're in a war. Have you realized that yet? Has it really hit home? I think for most people, for most of us here, we think life is a playground. And it is. I mean, it's fun. Don't get me wrong. I mean, aren't you guys glad that we get to have fun? It is fun, but it's not predominantly supposed to be a playground. It's a battleground. We live in a battleground. And we're not going to survive unless we realize that this is a spiritual battle, that there's more to life than meets the eye, that there's a soul within us, spirits around us. There are good ones and bad ones and angels and demons. That there's a God above us who's responsible for creation and who loves us to the point of redemption and constant attention over our lives. And so the enemy hates God and the people made in the image of God and therefore he is at war with us. And so we need to fight, fight for what's right. You know, I think probably... A really good illustration would be David and Goliath, you guys. You remember that whole story of David and Goliath back in 1 Samuel chapter 17? And, and there was a Goliath, the giant. He went out every single day and he was defying the armies of the living God. He was defying God. And there was this little guy named David. Who knows how old he was? Some say he was maybe 14 or 17. He was ruddy. In other words, he had red hair, good looking and, uh, you know, he comes to the battle and, and you know, he sees Goliath, this nine-foot massive of a man. And he says, who is this guy that's defying the armies of the living God? And everyone else, Saul included, they're all shaking in their boots. Like, you don't want anything to do with this guy, man. You don't want to try fighting this guy, right? And David's all, what's up? What's up? Why aren't we fighting this guy? And so, you know, uh, he talks to his brother. His brother says, hey, go back to the sheep. You're just filled with pride. You just want the glory. He says, no, I'm not here for my glory. I'm here for God's glory. And so eventually they take him up to Saul. And Saul's all, you can't do this. You know, you're just a, a youth. He's been a warrior all his life. This is like, this is like, it's set, man. It can't be changed. And David said, no, it can be. The Lord, he's helped me before. I, one time I killed a, beer, a bear. Imagine that. I mean, imagine killing a, a bear. Any of you want to fight a bear? How about a lion? David killed both of them, right? He grabbed it by the beard. Ah, don't you ever touch my sheep again, right? <laughs> I mean, I mean and, and so he saw, you know what? I'll fight him. And so Saul says, okay, all right. And, and Saul puts his uh, coat of armor on him. And David's all, no, it doesn't fit. I, I got to be me. I can't be you. And what does he do? He goes and he grabs five stones. He grabs his, uh, his sling. And he goes up to, the, to Goliath. And Goliath is all, what? What are you sending my way? You know, it's like, man, am I a dog? I mean, I, and then David said, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I'm going to take your head. I'm going to feed it to the birds. How could he be so confident? How could he be so confident? 
Because he, he knew the Lord. And he said, you come at me with sword and, and, and javelin and spear, but I come at you in the name of the Lord. And he knew. You know, and David, he fought with faith. He fought with grace. That's what the five stones symbolize. He fought for the glory of God. He said, and when I kill you, everyone's going to know that the living God is Jehovah God. And that's how we need to fight, you guys. I, I know whatever it is, whatever that mountain is in your life, and it could be something that you're battling in your own life. It could be for your children. It could be you know, for the ministry. I, I don't know what it is. I mean, yeah, I mean, we're fighting, or we're going to see later, the, the lies in society, the concepts of abortion or evolution or homosexuality, I mean, adultery. I mean, we're fighting a lot of these things, you know? And, and what we need to do is to fight like David fought, with faith and grace and courage and for God's glory. But we, man, we've got to get off the sidelines and get into the battle. You see... David fought for the glory of God and therefore he prevailed. And I want to encourage you because here's the bottom line. We're all part of this. 2 Timothy chapter 2 says you're a soldier. You're a soldier. And so, you know, I need to do my part, but you need to do your part too. Nehemiah chapter 3, when they were all, you know, contributing to the work of God, they were all building in front of their own house. We all have to do our part in this battle, just like every soldier does in every war. And as we do, then you watch how God will give us the victory. Look what it says right here in verse 4. It says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. I mean, they're not carnal. And primarily what he's talking about is they're just not human. They're, they're not natural. Of course it would mean uh, they're not sinful either because sometimes people try both of those things. You know, and, and we're going to experience spiritual warfare there. Therefore, here's the thing, you guys. We need to make sure that we use spiritual weapons. And Paul says here in verse 4 that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. And the Greek word right here, it speaks of human nature and we can't fight the supernatural with the natural. Sometimes people think, well, Manny, I know how God can bless a church. You guys win the lottery. Win the lottery. Money is the answer. You think that the answer to your problems is money. No, it's not. You know, it might be, I mean, it's funny. I was just meeting with, uh, with uh, someone the other day, and, and my wife and I actually met with someone from a different church, and they came here and they said, hey, watch out for this person. They're a manipulator manipulator that that's the way that someone can come in and what she said is this person will go to the wife of the pastor try to get her so that she can get you sometimes it's through manipulation those are human ways sometimes it's through intimidation sometimes it's through money sometimes we try to fight things through anger you know and we think that if we get angry like for example if I yell at my kids and I'll whip them into shape, then, you know, I can get them where they need to be spiritually. But oftentimes, the, the, the anger, it pushes them away. It pushes them away. Especially, it's kind of interesting, and this is so challenging. If you have a strong-willed child, you guys know what I'm talking about? 
like a strong-willed child. Some of you here probably don't have that, but you know, if you have a strong-willed child, the tendency of the parent is to be stronger in their discipline of that child. And what you find is that sometimes, not always, but sometimes, that's not the best approach because it even makes it worse. You have to really ask God for wisdom, right? And so you try everything. I mean, you try uh, yelling at them, uh, beating them, you know, bribing them. Nothing happens. Their heart is, is the same, and, and then it gets worse. And then what do you do? You lecture them. Just out of curiosity, because some of you here are your, your parents, and you lecture your kids. Okay, just out of curiosity, do you remember growing up being lectured? <laughs> I mean, sometimes I lecture my kids, and then I remember, oh, I remember when I was lectured by my aunt. It, it wasn't good, you know? I mean, you really need God's wisdom. I mean, you do your best uh, to be the best human Holy Spirit ever. <laughs> You're not the Holy Spirit. You're not the Holy Spirit. You know, what do we, what do we got to do? We got to do this in, in the spiritual realm, right? And one day then the Lord, he just taps you on the shoulder and he says, Manny, try, try praying. Try praying. And then what is our typical response? I already tried that. And then the Lord says this. No, let me, let me tell you. Try really praying. Oh, okay. I think I hear you, Lord. You see, because if you do that, then it says right here that the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. You see, this word right here is what we want to be. We want to be, in one sense, powerful and strong. Um, the word right here speaks of uh, the dunamis power. We're mighty, able, power enough to defeat the devil and all his lies when we fight with those spiritual weapons available to us. Uh, things like prayer to God, sometimes prayer and fasting to God, especially the Word of God, right? Things like truth, which we have in the Bible, wisdom from above, uh, not you know wisdom from below. I mean, I could just give you example after example. One thing I was thinking about was um, and, uh, and, you know, we're always thinking about things in the church, like how can we, for example, reach more people? And so someone might say, well, you should advertise. You can advertise on the radio. You can advertise on television or whatever. And, and you know, we could. And sometimes that's probably for some churches it's okay to do. But the thing that I would just say is this, that before you ever do you know, any of that, you know, and it could be, uh, I mean, putting new carpet in or whatever. It could be anything you think will draw the people. You're going to hire this band or whatever it might be. Nothing wrong with that. But, but, but the thing that the Lord really showed me is that you must pray about it. You must bathe it in prayer. Because if your confidence is in the advertising or whatever, the sign, the carpet, the, the bands, I mean, you name it then it's human. It's human. But if it's the Lord leading you to do whatever it is that He's called you to do, then, then it's divine. And then that's the difference. I want to encourage you as you're approaching your children, as you're dealing with things in your marriage, or whatever the case may be, that you're always seeking the Lord for wisdom from above. 
and not just wisdom from below. You see, all this is for the express purpose. He says right there, notice again in verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. The word pulling down, it means to uh, destroy. It's actually translated destruction in verse 8 and later in chapter 13, verse 10. It speaks of demolition. Do you guys, don't you kind of like those videos? You ever see those videos where they explode or whatever, they knock down a building? Have you guys ever seen that? And so they do the, the explosive on the bottom and whew, the whole thing falls down. Isn't that kind of cool? You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you're awake? Okay. All right. Well, that's what the Lord is saying, that in this world that we live in, in your life, there are strongholds of the enemy. And you know, just to use this as a visual illustration, there's your child, there's your child with a stronghold all around them. Can you see that? The word stronghold, it speaks of walls. A hundred years earlier, the Romans had come to Corinth and they had demolished their stronghold. The Corinthians knew exactly what Paul was talking about. And the reality of, of it is that's the way it is. There are strongholds in our family members, in our friends, in the society that we live in. Sometimes there are strongholds in your own life, they're holding, they're holding you with their strength and you're trapped. And God is just saying, well, I'm waiting for you to fight with spiritual weapons so that then you can invoke my power over their life. You know, and what I'll do is I'll demolish those castles and those fortresses, right? I mean, Satan has a stronghold on people, on society, and the world that we live in. It's a stranglehold, the walls of sin, the lies of Lucifer, the wisdom of this world. It has them trapped. It might even be you here today. You know, it also speaks of those walls that are visualized in the book of Joshua, uh, chapter 6, when... You know, the, 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 the Israelites, when they first uh, entered into the promised land, um, the, the first city that they were to conquer was Jericho. And Jericho had these walls all around the city. And so um, what they were to do was they were to march around the city uh, for six days. And so people wonder, why, why did they do that? You want to know why they did that? In the seventh day, they marched around seven times. You want to know why they marched around the, the city and uh, for six days and then seven times on the seventh day? So that they would see the walls. So that they would see how crazy it would be for them to even cross that wall. For them to see how completely impossible it was for them to bring those walls down. And then on the seventh day, it's kind of interesting, they were supposed to march around and then they were going to scream, ah, I don't know, maybe they were probably just saying the Lord, I don't know, they were probably saying something more spiritual than ah. John Corson is talking about how, that talks about how we stand on God's promises and, and we just speak his promises because some people, all they do is speak problems. All they do is speak, you know, complaints, negativity. And so there they are, and they're, they're yelling, and 
then all the walls fall down. All the walls are demolished. And what do they do? They go and they enter into the life of victorious Christian living. It's a spirit-filled life. See, the, the strongholds, these are walls, these are fortresses, these are castles that in one sense they hold us you know, captive from what God wants us to be and to do. And in another sense, they're holding their loved ones in this world that we live in captive. And God says, I want you as a church to fight in this war and to win it. I want you to be in it to win it. And for us, just know that we got to do this with spiritual weapons. It could be so many things. You know, I think of the way that the enemy has strongholds in our country. I mean, it could be something like sex. You know, the, the lie of, the, of Lucifer is like, it's okay to have sex outside of marriage. Um, it could be drugs, a uh, little, little bit of pot, a little bit of crystal meth, ain't no thing. I mean, it could be the love of money, the things that money can buy that take you out of the will of God. It, it could be something like evolution. When evolution starts, you know, propagating, now it's not even taught as a theory. They teach it as fact. They stuff it down the throats of our children leading to atheism or some sort of, I mean, you name it, there's a lot of different, what I would call strongholds in our society. I mean, like they would call it a spiritual revolution, uh, leading someone's heart to pluralism. I mean, it could be so many things that the enemy does. It's a lie. It's a stronghold. It could be something like the legitimacy of open sexuality or homosexuality to the point that one ends up concluding that God and His Word are wrong based upon their own personal experiences wherein they approve a lifestyle that God disapproves of. I mean, it's just so complex and creative in the enemy's cunningness. These are all strongholds because later we're going to see that they're arguments of the adversary. These types of strongholds are strongholds of Satan who uses any and all means available to him. I mean, he uses the school system, right? I mean, he uses the media, the music, the movies. He uses the World Wide Web. He uses all the screens of society and all the airways he can to propagate his lies. First John 5.19 says the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And so, this is what we're up against. How do you feel about that? I mean, does it matter to you? Does it matter to you that the lie of evolution is growing? Does it matter to you that, you know, our children are being taught that it's okay to have sex before marriage as long as you use a condom? I mean, does that matter to us at all? I pray that it would. I pray that it would maybe even, you know, stir us up a little bit to have a righteous indignation, some type of anger so that, that we can rise up and not wait to be drugged or dragged or drafted into the war, but to volunteer. I'm so blessed when I see some guys, they have that heart. I'll, I'll, I'm in. There's one of the guys that comes to the church, he's a Marine, and someone told him, don't be a Marine, you're going to be the first one to go. He says, I want to be. That's the heart that we should have, at least in the spiritual realm. You know, it might seem impossible, but... It's not. Look what it says in verse 5. Casting down arguments. There's that word. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity 
to the obedience of Christ. He talks about pulling down in verse 4, casting down in verse 5, same basic word to demolish those strongholds of the enemy. He talks about the arguments here of the adversary, and that word right there speaks of a reasoning hostile to the Christian faith. And he talks about every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And these are proud obstacles that keep people from knowing God. And so what do we need to do? We need to, he says right there, bring every thought into captivity. See? And that's how it begins. I mean, we're talking about truth here. We're talking about how the, the way the enemy works is he takes a lie and it's a thought. The Bible calls it a fiery dart. And boom, he shoots it into the heart and the minds of the people. And he says this. He says, for example, life isn't life until the life is viable. That's, that's the lie of the enemy, that it's not life until it's viable. And that means that that baby is not a baby until the baby can survive outside of the womb. I'm sorry, but that thought, that concept, that lie is from the devil because life is life at the moment of conception. Now we know that uh, they say that half of all pregnancies are unintentional and they say that 40% of all those pregnancies, they, uh, they end in abortion, Right? Uh, we say, we, we, according to statistics, some say 20, 25% of all conceptions end in abortion. So today we have uh, 50 million abortions worldwide every year. In our country since 1973, 58 million abortions. In the world, 125,000 children die or murdered by their mommy every single day. How did that happen? A lie. It was just a thought that the devil put in. That's not a life. Oh, let me tell you something. It may not have been planned by mom and dad, but it was planned by, by Father God. That's life. I mean, I could have been aborted very easily. My parents weren't married. Uh, my, my mom was young. And some people told her, don't, don't go through with it. I'm glad she did, to be honest with you. Maybe you're not, but I am, man. <laughs> oh, man. All I'm saying is that all these arguments, these lies, you know, well, we're not here by design. We're here by accident, random chance, a series of fortuitous occurrences, and boom, here we are. The amazing creatures that we are, able to reproduce and love and do all these things by accident. And that would be like someone saying there was an explosion in a junkyard and out came a 747 plane or something, you know? I mean, it's, not, it's absolutely not possible. You guys, we are fearfully and wonderfully made by our Creator God. And we're accountable to Him. But see, when we have the spiritual approach and we're able to deal with all these things and we bring every thought into captivity. I mean, I don't know if you guys saw the video of, uh, of the man. Uh, I guess he took, 
I guess his little boy got a, two gifts that were the same at his birthday party. And so what he did was he went back to the store to take, take one of them back. I don't know if you guys have seen this. And, and what ended up happening was his little boy chose a Little Mermaid doll. Did you guys see that video? Okay, so anyways, he's uh, filming it, and he's filming, and he's all happy. And he's all, I went to take my little boy to change his toy, and he got a Little Mermaid doll. And he said, what am I going to do about it? He said, you know, basically nothing. I'm so proud of him. I'm going to let him choose everything, his sexuality, everything. If he wants dolls or whatever. I mean, and I, I wish I knew it verbatim. Actually, I have it right here, but we don't have time to read it. Um, and, and, and what's he saying? Is he saying, the, he's saying this, because that's the concept of the world that we live in. I'll let them choose their sexuality. And you want to know something? Everybody was like, oh, bravo, what a beautiful father. I'm sorry, what a terrible father. Terrible. If I have a little boy, I'm going to teach him to be a man. What does the Bible say? A child left to himself brings his mother shame. All I'm saying is that you guys be so careful because the thoughts and the mentality and the concepts of this world, they, they get a hold of us, right? And it changes everything. The Bible says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is a good and perfect and acceptable will of God. See, there, there are things that, that go on in our mind. You bring every thought into captivity. You check every thought with the Lord. Have you ever heard that saying? If you sow a thought, you reap an action. If you sow an action, you reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you reap a character. And if you sow a character, you reap a destiny. How did it begin? It began with a thought. It's okay for me to look at naked women. As long as I'm not with them, I can check them out. And there's the thought. What are you going to do with it? You have to reject it. Test it by God's word. It'll ruin your life. Pornography is demonic. Remember that. It's demonic. It'll ruin you. It'll ruin you when you get married and you're having you know, that beautiful act of intimacy with your wife. What does the world say? They say, this is the mentality of the world says, life is short, have an affair. Right? Is that true? Well, life is short, and your sin will find you out. Right? One day we're going to stand before God. Paul here, he's trying to teach them, man, that, that we need to make sure that we don't buy the lies of the enemy, but we know the truth of God's word by which we test everything that we hear. He says there in verse 6, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. What, what he's doing now is he's kind of going back. Again, this was a general war. But it was also a personal issue in the congregation. And so he says, you guys, when I go there, back to Corinth, and you become an obedient church, then you as an obedient church 
must know how to punish disobedience. And if there is any division going on in the church, Paul said, we will punish that division. And he goes on and he talks about it. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. And those who oppose Paul, they said, yeah, well, I'm a Christian. And, and Paul just says, well, so am I there in verse 7. And he says in verse 8, for even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed. I mean, he just basically says, you know, some might call it boasting, but it, whether you like it or not, it's a reality that I've been given authority. I've been given responsibility to build you up as a church and to protect you and to make sure this church is not torn down. And so he says, I'm not afraid or ashamed to use that authority given to me. It's a responsibility that I have from Christ. He says in verse 9, lest I seem to terrify you by my letters, you know. And Paul's just saying, I'm not trying to scare you with my letters, but whatever you do, don't think that I'm just talking. If I need to clean house, I'll clean house. And then he says there in verse 10, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. And so let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. Paul says, hey, we're going to follow through, you guys, on what we're saying in this letter. We're going to discipline anyone who attempts to destroy God's church and divide his disciples. And so for us, it's a congregational thing, but I think for us, it's also a very, very, very personal thing, you guys. My prayer is that we would be a people of spiritual weapons. You go over to Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, or you study 2 Timothy chapter 2, and what you'll find is that God has given us the spiritual weapons in order to win this victory. Two of the most important offensive weapons, I'll say this in closing, is prayer and the Word of God. So let me just ask you a question, okay? Just between you and the Lord right now, how's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? I mean, do you, do you pray? I mean, do you really pray? Do you get on your face? Do you fast? Do you seek the Lord? If not, I encourage you with all my heart, make sure that becomes a healthy part of your life. And then secondly, do you know the Word? I mean, are you saturating yourself in the Scriptures? Are you able to uh, swing that sword? You know, I, I kind of, I, I have a sword. Matthew, can you go get my sword? No, I'm just joking, I'm just joking. <laughs> I have a sword in my office, and I'm like, man, I should have brought it out, and I can show them, you know, the visual illustration of what it is. I mean, I think it would be so cool to live in those days, you know, where all these guys, they had swords or whatever, you know, who knows, I probably would have got beat up, but it's all right, man. <laughs> I'm not a big guy, but man, that would be fun to have a sword. But then the Lord reminds me, you do have a sword. Manny, but this is what you got to do. You got to learn how to use it. And you got to take it out of its sheath and you got to start swinging when the enemy comes after you or your family or the church. The mission that he's called us to, what do we do? We learn the truth of God's word 
and we stand on it. There are so many people, unfortunately, they think that life is about being happy. And they get all frustrated with, you know, God and, and Christianity and you know, they start complaining and next thing you know, they're all over Facebook telling the whole world that their life is terrible. Why? Because they're not happy. Listen, life is not about being happy. That's another lie. Life is about being holy. Remember that. Set apart to do the will of God. Period. When that happens, I have a feeling there's going to be a smile on your face. But it happens as we mature to that place of understanding. You guys, God wants to bless you. Don't get me wrong. He, he likes it when we laugh and He likes it when we smile. And, you know, he, he gives us the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is joy. But don't get caught up in your own agenda. I encourage you guys, get caught up in the agenda of the Lord. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626-454-3414. Remember that Jesus loves you.